P.S. Today I am recording live from Cape Cod, Massachusetts, so keep your ears peeled for some sounds of sprinklers, cars driving by, and maniacal birds. This is your host, Dr. Kira Lovell at the University of Utah, and welcome to our penultimate episode of Experiencing Public History. Unit 5 is titled Negotiating the Census, Online and in the Museum. This week we're thinking about the experience of the museum or archive itself. How do the spaces of public history shape our experience of it? How is our experience within museums or archives shaped by our current cultural and historical contexts? These are some guiding questions we have for us this unit. Now let's run through the assigned materials for the week. A few of the sources this week think about touch. Most recently in Salt Lake, I visited the Natural History Museum of Utah, where I found a variety of sensory and interactive elements, including smelling native plants, listening to interviews with Ute people, and even using virtual reality to see the surroundings of a paleontologist. While many exhibits allowed touch, such as geological experiments or scientific models, one in particular may touch the centerpiece. To demonstrate how early humans left an impact on the environment with their bodies, the museum showed their fingerprints and drawings left on cave walls and encouraged kids to leave their own on a blank black wall that revealed small oily outlines of hands in the light. Everything you touch leaves an impact. You can check out a couple of the pictures I took from the museum in the transcript. Despite all of these opportunities for touch, as a museum visitor, I still craved grazing the dinosaur bones. Were the Triceratops bones real or replicas? Would they be smooth or rough to the touch? And perhaps subconsciously, can I in some way relive the imaginary excitement of Jurassic Park by absorbing these bones' power? Because every time you touch dinosaur bones, it sets off an alarm that plays this song, right? They're moving in herds. They do move in herds. Okay, yeah, enough of that. I got carried away. Okay, so Fiona Canlon's essay helps explain why museum visitors like me want to touch the artifacts. What objects visitors want to touch, where they touch objects, how they try to handle them, and how factors like signage or even an entrance fee can shape why they do it. Canlon's essay begins by offering an overview on the history of touch in museums, arguing that museums prior to the 19th century allowed a range of sensory experiences, including touch. Although not touching museum objects became normalized by the beginning of the 19th century, tactile objects have been increasingly reintroduced over the past few decades to improve accessibility for visually impaired visitors. An example for how the experience of museums has changed over the past century can be found in the required readings for graduate students. I'm gonna run through those. Helen Reese Leahy argues that museums are experienced through their quote, period eye, unquote, or a set of viewing norms within a particular historical or cultural context. 
Lee explains this through the lens of an art museum. Think about what an art museum looks like today. Are the walls relatively bare? Are their works sparsely placed? If you need a reminder, check out the University of Utah's Museum of Fine Arts on campus free with your student ID. In the early 19th century, art museums looked much differently. Crowding the wall with art allowed visitors' eyes to roam and see pictures from slightly different vantage points, even creating opportunities for visitors to brush past one another and exchange their thoughts. How might your experience of art museums be different if they were less structured, more conversational, or even more chaotic? How does this experience shape how we feel about the art itself? Metathoba Carlson's essay, Walking the Museum, reminds us that we not only see objects in museums in ways particular to our historical context, but also contextually behave in certain ways within them. The essay begins with a shift in museology from seeing museums as a collection of objects to the museum as a site of social and corporeal practices. Our performances help construct spaces. Let's take, for example, church or a site of worship. Our understanding of these spaces and how they relate to our identity is shaped by how we're taught and how we choose to behave in them. I'm going to give you a list of questions and you think about a site of worship with whom you are familiar. Is your worship site separated by age or gender? How do you dress? How do you hold your hands in this space? Do you kneel, sit, or stand? Do you sing or recite something? Do you listen to someone or an instrument? Do you drink or eat something? What are the meanings projected onto these behaviors and objects? Do all of these collective practices help you feel something within this space about yourself or within the world? Museums are very similar, yet we often don't think critically about the normalized behaviors we enact within them. Thobel Carlson bridges that performative analysis with newer affect theory on our emotions. Asking what is the effective power of the exhibition? Can exhibitions evoke new feelings and social identities, as well as what impact might these affective museum encounters have on public history? Now, let's return to the assigned materials for everyone this week. Hannah Heathman, who specializes in museum podcasting, hosts a show called Museums in Strange Places, in which she travels to small local museums, interviewing their curators about their design and experience. I've chosen her episode, Public Housing Utopia, because the Greenbelt Museum breaks a few traditional rules. For example, because the museum captures the history of a local public housing project that still exists in Maryland, housing residents still live on the property, blending past with present in the museum experience. Second, the museum allows you to touch the furniture and objects in the museum, causing a surprise you can hear Heathman experiencing while on tour. Think about this within your own living spaces. How might we tell that story? Emily Thompson's article, Making Noise in the Roaring Twenties, takes us to New York City in the 1920s and 1930s. Building on a recent mapping exercise, this digital archive attempts to recover not just sounds from the past through pins on a map, but also the meaning of those sounds to the people who originally heard them. 
dog barks, loud noises, machine clanking. Her essay is on the interactive archive she created mapping those sounds and noise complaints from that era. I recommend perusing the website she created while reading her essay to make it a little bit more understandable. I linked the website in the transcript for this podcast. Thompson actually won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award for her work on this project within her broader research on the soundscape of modernity and how that's changed over time. Thompson encourages us to think critically about digital archives, including not only how visually oriented they are, which reflects what historical scholarship looks like today, but the materiality of archival objects. Sonic artifacts take on a life of their own over time due to chemical imbalances and changes in technology. How do we account for this in the archive? Now, let's briefly talk about your last project for the course. For this unit, students do not have to complete a project yet. By July 28th, students will either complete part two of the Public History Online project or part two of the Oral History interview. This is a firm deadline because that will give us only one remaining week to leave peer review on these projects. In addition to these projects, students will also submit a short reflective essay on the process of producing that project. I will post that essay alongside the link to their project in the discussion boards. Take your time on these, as this is your last opportunity to apply what you've learned and put your research and interests in conversation with the course concepts. Demonstrate that you are thinking critically about this. This assignment will be graded harder than all previous assignments in the course. Let me know if you have questions or want to talk ideas. Don't hesitate to email me with any questions or concerns. That is all for this episode of Experiencing Public History. Tune in next time for our last episode of the course. Yay! Until then, I'll see you in the discussion boards.